Good day, good evening, and good streaming. I am Jello Biafra, and this is Renegade Roundtable. Tonight, and I do emphasize night, because no matter when you're listening, watching, whatever, tonight we are going to Noir Alley. Yes, the guest is the Noir Alley guy, as a lot of you know him. Uh, therefore, yeah, I kind of have to <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Even got my Richard Widmark tie on from Kiss of Death. <laughs> his greatest ever role. His first role, and it got him an Oscar nomination. Anyway, um, besides Noir Alley, you go, he go to his uh, website, and there's three of them, as it turns out. It is described as uh, a word slinger, impresario, and of course the czar of noir. Also responsible for the Noir City Film Festival in the Bay Area and now other places, the Film Noir Foundation. And there's a website for that. There's a website for Noir City and eddiemuller.com. We've got nonfiction, novelist, playwright, director, and more. Here we go. The czar of noir himself, Eddie Muller. <laughs> Jello, thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. I appreciate yes. it very much. Well, good, good. I really appreciate you coming. I mean, not too many people know I'm such a sucker for these these movies and everything. I even dressed up for you, and then here you are on the screen, and you got a jeans jacket on. Yeah, I know, and I wear denim. I know, you you put on a, a suit, well, not a suit, but at least you have the, the shirt and tie, and I went with the denim, and I've got like a some kind of, I, I don't know what, but this is, you, I'm at home. I mean, this is, I'm in my home office and uh, I just, uh, once in a while, I have to give it a rest, uh, you know, from from working the persona of the czar of noir. But but listen, before we start talking, and I'm, I'm very uh, enthused about doing this conversation, but I want to yeah. tell people that you have been a, a charter member of the Noir City Film Festival crowd from the from the very beginning, from the first one we did at the Castro Theater in 2003, uh, you have always been an attendee and a uh, a supporter of the Film Noir Foundation. So, um, it, while it may come as a surprise to some of your uh, loyal fans that you're a noir head, <laughs> like so many of the rest of us. Um, it is hugely appreciated because uh, you don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk, my friend. Uh-huh. Yeah, I didn't have time to go find a jacket to put on, so I dashed over here, and we're still recording a little bit late, but at least it's nice, easy evening for both of us here. Absolutely. And uh, bridge traffic wasn't too horrible anyway. So uh, what created you? <laughs> what created me? What a, what a great question. I think uh, a confluence of factors. I think I am unquestionably my father's son. I, I realize now that I am sort of following in my father's footsteps because he was a he was a sports guy. But the way that all played out for him professionally, I'm I'm I feel like I have followed in his footsteps in that regard because he was like considered, you know, like an expert in what he did. And he would get, you know, phone calls in the middle of the night from people who wanted him to settle a bet 
about a boxing match or something, and now I get those calls or or he was emails. A Pardon? He was a sports writer, correct? Correct. He was a sports writer for the San Francisco Examiner when uh, that was known as the flagship of the Hearst Empire, right? And we we can certainly talk about that. But um, that's partly what created me. Also, the 60s kind of created me because I had a bit of a backlash to the whole... I mean, I was born in 1958, and so I was very impressionable. You grew up in San Francisco, too, right? I did. I grew up in San Francisco. And so, you know, the, the, the whole 60s movement, the whole summer of love thing and all that, the airplane and the dead and all of that, that was right there in front of me. And quite honestly, I was very resistant to it. I was not a flower power kind of guy or anything. I, I It kind of pushed me in a different direction. And while I have, at, at this point, I have no, you know, huge uh, antagonism toward those years, uh, I realized that my, like I say, it just, it pushed me in a different direction. And and so I was kind of more into what, what San Francisco was like prior uh, to the hate Ashbury and all that stuff, and 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 now I see it as one big continuum. But um, but I don't know. I mean that you know. And then dialing for dollars, what you know, cutting school to watch movies in the middle of the day. That that also helped create me. <laughs> well, so did you get decent grades at the end of the day, or uh, did you not? Um, I was not a particularly good student. I, I found that I. Uh, I was one of, I, I don't know what I was looking for necessarily, but um, I connected with certain teachers more than I connected with subjects. So if it was uh, civics or anthropology or English or something like that, I found I did very well. If it was science and mathematics, I didn't do as well. And that was entirely, I think, because of the teachers. I find that science and mathematics teachers are not as communicative and it's not as easy to connect with them as it is with social studies teachers and English teachers who are much better communicators, if, if that makes sense. Was that was that kind of your experience? Well, I also had very influential uh, speech and drama teachers. I mean, the middle school guy, junior high, as they called it then, he he liked mutant kids. My good friend, John Greenway, I grew up with, who uh, basically was the classic smartest kid in the school no one could control. And he was getting almost straight Fs by the time we were in eighth grade, but he got an A in the speech class because uh, he enjoyed the assignments. He liked... Uh, he liked uh, he liked geography too, and the 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 teacher was a was a native of Oxford, Mississippi, with an accent just like Lindsey Graham named Van Alessandro. Wow, that's and, Faulkner uh, town, Faulkner territory. He preached on Sundays, and he was very much a fundamentalist Christian, but he didn't force that on people, which was a really good thing for me to learn clear back then. So I I I didn't view everybody as like these rabid 
bigots that so many right. many of the ones who get on screen tend to be. But you know, he he, he the assignment on advertising. John did uh, did a brand he made up of marijuana, and I think he got an A for that. And then uh, we were supposed to read a poem to the class. I read "Dead Babies," the lyrics to an Alice Cooper song. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. So then he also directed the play. So that kind of coaxed me out of my shell for that. And I got the the Boris Karloff role in Arsenic and Old Lace in the spring. And you know, both both he and the and the, and Barbara Moore, the one I had in high school, they were both method directors. And we did real plays and they were very demanding. So uh I got a lot out of that that went into my own story not just stage, but also my writing, not just music, lyrics, but the music. The words have to fit the atmosphere. You can't switch the lyrics to Moon Over Marin and Nazi Punk's Fuck Off and have either song work very well. And uh, so he'd be, and even, even my, uh, my engineer for many years, Matt Kelly, told a studio magazine once that he dealing with me in the studio is more like dealing with a movie director than a musician, you know, because I, I acted as producer from Frankenchrist onward for everything except the Lard album. So didn't realize for years how much the method acting training influenced my lyrical style, lots of you are there type mm -hmm. stuff instead of uh, sloganeering and everything, you know, instead of another anti-nuclear bomb song, do kill the poor from the Pentagon's point of view and goes on and on from there of course so yeah, I, uh, you, I, yeah, did you have did you have any uh forensic speech or uh or, or drama teachers you do not do drama that in high school i didn't really do uh drama in high school because i no that wasn't my interest i was interested in film without question and it I had a, um, in the San Francisco Unified School District, when I was in, I'm trying to remember exactly the years that I was in high school, but which I don't think I can remember. But um, I do recall that I took a film literacy course, which was the very first one ever offered in the San Francisco Unified School District. And it was, a, it was an interesting uh, saga because I, I was kind of a dick. I, I'm going to admit, I was kind of a dick when I was in high school. And I, I just was so wound up in my own stuff that I, that I was so deeply into. And film was, was one of those things. And so what when this- music? What are you listening to music-wise? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it wasn't until I left high school and went to the San Francisco Art Institute that then- that's when the whole punk explosion happened. And that's when, you know, I was at the Art Institute with Penelope and, and uh, you know, when the Avengers were formed. And, uh, you know, that that's when you were doing all your stuff at the Mabue Gardens. And uh, but but when I was in high school, I had this teacher who really tried his best. And I it's one of the regrets of my life that I was terrible to this guy for, I, I'm not sure why it's just because the way you are when you're an adolescent, you know, and we made a film, we made a film as the, as the school project. And I, um, you know, I kind of wrote and directed this film, but he was, it was just like a little mini Hollywood saga in high school because I was like the Orson Welles and, and he was like the studio boss who took, everything away from me. <laughs> the teacher? 
Yeah, because he said you're you're kind of dominating the whole process and it needs to be shared amongst the class. And, you know, I nowadays that would be uh, obvious. It wasn't so obvious back then. So he, he was probably right about all of this. And um, I was I was trouble. I was kind of trouble uh, for a lot of teachers. But I say that now because I kind of regret that I put them through the grinder. But there were other teachers who got me totally and were very, you know, I, I had to have letters of recommendation written when I wanted to go to art school and, you know, because you're not supposed to go to art school right out of high school. And I did. And I got several of these teachers to several of my high school teachers who wrote me letters of recommendation. You know, that's just you asked. I'm, I'm just telling you, honestly, that was that was sort of my experience. My experience. I somewhat regret it. I wish I had been nicer to these people, but you don't know that when you when you're a teenager. Did you ever go back and visit any of them? Well, it was very interesting. Years later, you may recall, uh, I did some work with a local theatrical troupe called the Thrill Peddlers. Oh, yes. Uh, we did Grand Guignol plays at a uh, at a venue called the Hypnodrome in San Francisco. And well, we got to define Grand Guignol, too. Gra- Grand Guignol was a theater of terror that was created in uh, in France in, in the early part of the 20th century, and and my uh, my dear colleague Russell Blackwood thought it would be wonderful to, to yeah to revive uh, Grand Guignol Theater because it was all about reflecting the horrors of contemporary society to an audience in an entertaining fashion. And the uh, the essential thing about Grand Guignol Theater is they would do multiple plays, multiple one-act plays in a night. But when the play started, you had no idea whether it was going to be funny or whether it was going to be horrifying. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that was our modus operandi. And one of these nights, my film literacy teacher showed up at, at one of the performances because he had seen it written up in the local paper and knew that I was involved. And so he was the one who came out to sort of make peace, if you will, after all these years, like, hey, glad to see you're doing something creative and all that, which I really, really deeply yeah, appreciated. Yeah. And uh, and so we at least did have a, a nice conversation and sort of... Uh, uh, you know, it, it's the way it's supposed to be. Like, uh, and I told him that, you know, you, I sort of got my start doing this stuff in your class, even though I was a prick. And, uh, and, and I'm glad we had that moment because he, he passed away, uh, yeah. a, a couple yeah. of years after that. So Van Alessandro came to a dead Kennedy show the one time we played in Boulder. And what do you think, Van? Well, I like the fact that you've put all those teacher imitations to good use. <laughs> I wish you quit picking on my buddy Reagan. 
Well, but that, yeah. that that was a matter of, you know, he knew how to agree to disagree. I mean, he he let out that he really thought Jerry Falwell was cool, too. And I kind of, OK, well, you can imagine what I think of that, Van. And then we go on and he came to my mother's 90th birthday party. And that was that was fun. I mean, they liked each other anyway. So uh, that was a nice treat. And he showed up unexpectedly at a memorial service for my sister, my younger sister, when she and her husband were killed in a mountain climbing accident, Rocky Mountain National Park. And of course, being an accomplished Sunday preacher and whatnot, he spoke beautifully. Mm -hmm. And I was so glad to see him there. And oh my God, his toupee's gone. (laughs) So uh, yeah, so we've kept roughly in touch. He never went to one of my spoken word shows. Uh, uh, Another really good teacher I had for American literature right before before I left high school early because I had all the credits, he came to a spoken word show. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like back in the 60s, all this stuff you're saying. Yeah, so, but I mean, uh, isn't, it, isn't it nice that when you can deal with these people face to face later on and sort of, you know, make amends if, or, or whatever yeah. needs to be done, it's like, but that can only really happen in a, you know, personally, like face to face. This is why... I have so much so much trouble with social media and the fact that people, you know, become virulent enemies through social media. And it's like, well, if you actually had the time to sit down and, you know, talk to each other, uh, you don't have to agree, but you can at least uh, be civil and, you know, understand that you're human beings with opposing points of view which seems next to impossible these days on social media. So, Well, you, you have to be a lot more civil if suddenly you're seeing the person eye to eye. Absolutely. Too. And occasionally I've been putting a, a position where somebody I've mouthed off about, uh, you know, somebody else in the scene or whatever, and then there they are right there, including Jerry Brown once after uh, California Uber Alice. And, um, you know, you have to be on your toes and be diplomatic. And in some cases it was just as well I kept my mouth shut about some stuff over the years after X got really big, the punk band X in a major label way, while Dead Kennedys went very much another way, more and more hardcore and rabidly DIY and growl, snarl, X or sell out this, sell out that. And I never said it publicly because we'd always been friendly and stuff. And I didn't see him for many years. And they came back and played the X songs with Billy Zoom again. And uh, luckily it was all very, very friendly and they had no idea I had ever copped that attitude about them at all which uh you know it was just as well which is interesting because i just had an email exchange today with john doe because you know really because john is uh is starring in a remake of doa right oh my god (laughs) yeah 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 he's got the edmund o'brien role he is playing the edmund frank bigelow he is frank bigelow in a new version of DOA. Wow. John John John's a huge noir guy like you. See, so you what? Who's directing it? Any idea? Uh I I'm embarrassed uh I do know cuz I started watching the film earlier today. Uh I don't I can't, but I can't remember the the guy's name. Uh but it's, it's in black and white just... and it's a period it's a period piece in black and white and uh and John is wow. the is the star. 
And, you know, also just to, to bring the whole punk thing kind of full full cycle here, uh, Chris D. from the Flesh Eaters and Divine Horseman. Right. He's not the director then. No, he is not the director. But uh, I've known Chris for years and years, and he is a total film guy. And, uh, oh, yeah. and uh, you know, we, we met years in, ago, and I didn't realize that I had already – because uh, he worked for the American Cinematheque in Hollywood. Uh, and when I started doing my film shows there, I did not realize that the guy that I was working with was Chris D. Because I guess he wasn't in leather pants with his shirt off when I was right. dealing with him. So I and didn't recognize him. Anyway. Pardon? That wasn't quite where he was at anyway as a stage guy and stuff. But uh, Well, yeah, but, you know, he, he's such a, uh, a writer. He's such a learned writer yeah. of all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I just I've been very close to Chris for years and years. And anyway, it's funny. So the whole there are more connections between film noir and punk rock than people might realize. Oh, yeah, we might get into that a little later because, uh, yeah, I'm still on almost my first page here. Um, you went to the Art Institute. You became close and involved with George Kuchar. Yes. And But then you get – do you want to talk about that at all? Um, it was – it was a very interesting experience. I mean, I realize now looking back that I was a little too young, maybe, to, uh, and th which may have been a good thing. Like that whole era, that mid 70s to very early 80s era in San Francisco was, um, you know, punk was happening, AIDS was right around the corner. And there was a there was a fervor, you know, there was an artistic fervor that was happening in San Francisco that I was only peripherally soaking up because I was honestly, I was still a, a teenager, you know, and there was a lot of stuff <laughs> going on. It was a deep dive, the learning experience. And so a lot of my understanding of classic Hollywood kind of was filtered through George and his obsession uh. with um, Hollywood movies. Like I didn't know anything about Douglas Sirk until I had met George and he, and so my understanding of Douglas Sirk came through George's parodies of Douglas Sirk movies, right? That being a director, that being a major director. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, some people listening to this are going to have no idea who Douglas Sirk was and no idea what noir is even. We're, so, <laughs> we're, try, we're, 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 we're dragging the river here. So the well, occasional that's, that's annotation. Good. That's good. I love that because, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to keep talking to the same people who just want to tell me what their favorite noir films are. I want to talk to people who don't know what I'm talking about, you know? Well, speaking of which, who exactly? Where does George Kuchar fit in underground film? History? Okay, so George Kuchar uh, from New York with his twin brother, Mike, they were major figures in the American underground film scene of the 1960s. Uh, they were twin brothers, 
uh, from New York, uh, both gay, who were obsessed with um, like old Hollywood. They they were John Waters before John Waters ever appeared on the scene, right? So, and then George at one point, because there's no way you actually make a living making these kind of films or anything. Uh, he he caught on both, and and I knew both. George and Mike, um, but George caught on at the San Francisco Art Institute as a film teacher because the Art Institute was filled with artists who needed to make money. I mean, that's what it was, right? So whether you were a painter or a sculptor or a filmmaker or a photographer, you were teaching at the Art Institute because you had to supplement your income as an artist uh, by teaching. And and George was a very interesting, in some respects, my understanding of cinema came through this weird um, filter, looking back through this insane prism that George had, the way he would comprehend old Hollywood, uh, was reverential, but very um, satirical at the same time. And anyway, so I, I made films with George and, um, you know, and, and then I made my own film when I was at the art Institute. And, and once that was done, I kind of used up everything there was to offer there. So I did not, I did not matriculate at the San Francisco art Institute. I got, I got there, I got the equipment, I soaked up what I could soak up and I made a film and I got out. It's it's very much like uh, with a band, like uh, we need the equipment, <laughs> you know, we need the studio to record. And then once you do it, it's like, fine, I'm out of here now. <laughs> Got what I needed. Right. Kuchar in, you know, film legend world, it's not old Hollywood people think of when they think of him. They think more in terms of, um, you know, trash movies and varying kinds. And he's not in the incredibly strange films book that research put out, I don't think. But I'm thinking a lot of his contemporaries were in there from the... Ray Dennis Steckler to Frank Henenlotter and uh, many others are in that. I, I kind of lump him in with them. Am I right or wrong? Uh, yes, although when when George and Mike started making films, it really was um, the earliest days of completely do-it-yourself, independent, underground cinema. I mean, George predated everybody, not not only uh, John Waters, but he, he predated Andy Warhol. I mean, he, he was just this goofy kid. He and his twin brother were goofy kids in New York who were movie obsessed, who knew there was something off about them. There was no place for them to fit in. And so they just loved movies and decided we're going to make our own films. And the thing that was always astounding about George is people always assumed that George was this brilliant satirist, uh, cartoonist, all this stuff. But there was part of George that was completely serious about what he was doing. You know, it's just like he never felt like, well, they're never going to let me make a real movie. A guy like me can't make a real movie, you know? So I'm just going to do... serious too. 
<laughs> yeah, he says I'm just going to do my things. And but George was a was a fantastic guy, and uh, his ability to read people and see what mattered to them, and quite honestly, George's ability to exploit people uh, in, in a way they wanted to be exploited was a huge education for me. Because, you know, if you're teaching a film class and you've got all these people who want to do things, it's like you got to convince them to do stuff that makes them, it might be uncomfortable, but you're you're pushing them to a place they haven't gone before. And and that was what George was really, really good at. Um, and, and then, you, you know, years later, it was, it was really cool, Jello, because uh, I don't think George ever quite understood because we, we, we weren't like bonded or close in any way. You know, there was a, there was a fellow named Kurt McDowell who made films uh, in George's class, who, who was like his prize student. And, and Kurt made a film back then called Thundercrack. That was like a black and white noir horror movie, porn film. It was right, a combination of everything. And George was in it, you know, and, <laughs> and Kurt was going to be, Kurt was going to be the, he was from the Midwest, but he was going to be San Francisco's answer to John Waters. And then Kurt ended up dying of AIDS. And, Mm -hmm. but, but all of that stuff was just really uh, part part of my formative years, let's say. Uh, you, You cycled out of the Art Institute and then somehow you probably... Although I'm guessing your parents were very encouraging with you with whatever you wanted to do and stuff. Somehow you had to go get a job or make a living or do something. And it appears in your bio that you were a working journalist for a decade and a half plus. Correct. Before Czar of Noir even was on the horizon or anything. So is that the direct jump from the Art Institute to uh, writing news articles or whatever? And where, who did you write for? What did you write? <laughs> Pretty much. It was a fairly direct jump. I was a bartender at some point, uh, but I did yeah. I did make a transition to just writing for a living because I knew it was possible because my dad, like when you say, how are you created? I was created because my dad was a writer who never, uh, I, I don't even know that my father graduated from high school, right? So, but he was a working journalist and it always felt to me like this is something you can do. And so I just applied for a job at a trade publication. It was about the ocean shipping industry. I applied for a job at this magazine in in uh, San Francisco and I got the job and I was there and then I just steadily kept doing that until it was like uh, I was working for national magazines and then I was like the first West Coast editor of several of these publications with a Nathan. well it, it was weird they were publications that no one would really know I think they're even defunct today but um you know, distribution magazine, business logistics, all the, I wrote for a publication oh. called Sports Travel that was about 
uh, the guys who actually book all, you know, have to tra- handle all the travel stuff for sports teams and all this. So it's it's classic trade journalism. It's it's not like I was working for the Washington Post or something, you know. But um, but man, was that an education? I mean, it got me around the world, uh, covering different things, kind of from the inside and learning how things work for people who are involved in the business as opposed to people who are just looking at it from a public perspective, right? So if I if I wrote something about a trade war with China, I was writing about it from the point of view of the people who are actually involved rather than how does this affect you, John Q. Public, you know? I mean, uh, and I, I got, you know, some pretty angry letters from from some people who were like, how dare you say this? And it's, you know, Fred Smith, the head of Federal Express, wrote a a very sternly worded letter one time (laughs) about something that I had said about his arrogant handling of uh, landing rights in Japan or something like that, you know. So anyway, it was it was it was a great education. Yeah, it also meant that you had to learn the subject and write well and write on deadline and write quickly. Absolutely. Skill I wish I acquired, but I've never been able to do it. And, you know, I had to turn down spin over the years and Harper's and more maximum rock and roll on down because I'm so slow at writing prose. I gave it a try for your Noir City magazine, of course. And uh, <laughs> he chuckles. I don't think. No, it was it was great. It was great. But that but let's face it, Jello, that magazine's a quarterly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Different right. than writing um, for a daily or a weekly where you have to turn the stuff in. The annual wham, I wanted that <laughs> feather in this very hat. <laughs> The problem was I didn't write super academically and in depth like people do for Noir City Times. I wrote you wanted noir record albums, so I wrote them in the in the the snappy style of the program notes for each film at Noir City and stuff and you know made it jump that way. But that was exactly what we wanted. I if I had known oh, that your I, ultimate I goal your ultimate goal was to be included in the Noir City annual, then that's a different thing because we clearly you had said you didn't have room the day. we have certain things that we put in the magazine that we don't put in the annual because they right. are specific to the magazine. And some of the more um uh you know off the beaten path stuff like what we asked you to provide and and you know those were never really meant to be in the in the annual but we'll we'll get around to something else jello you can write something else and we'll make sure it gets (laughs) or you can resurrect it and put it in another one whatever you want to do there you go But that now, back to what created you. You wrote for trade magazines. I'd love to see the FedEx thing and stuff, because a, a sharp-tongued columnist is always fun, sometimes even if I don't agree with them and things, including you know Jim Murray, the sports writer my dad liked when I was growing up. Oh, my God. He, he, he was quite hilarious. 
and an NFL team, the one time Washington Redskins, trades all their draft choices for all these older guys and veterans. And they did, I think, win a Super Bowl from it. Then George Allen Sr., not the right wing governor who tried to be president senior. And he started referring to them as the old skins. (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying to think of a better example of him because there were some really no, oh, Jim, not as Jim Murray was was a legend, an absolute legend in uh, among sports writers. And you know, back back in those days, Jello sports writing w- was the best writing in the newspaper because it it wasn't so serious. You could you could kind of cut loose and and write very creatively. And unfortunately, I think a lot of that's been lost because you know, everything's on television now. And now it's just like, who's the biggest loudmouth who can yeah, holler? Yeah, news cycle. Yeah, and, 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 and the, the artistry of writing a daily column on deadline doesn't really exist anymore. And right. I mean, there are people who are, you know, people write their blogs and all this stuff, but writing to fit a certain amount of column inches, as they called it, and having people... Having that be a necessary part of the day for people, like I have to read this guy uh, by this time or I can't go on with my day, is is pretty amazing. And and my dad was one of those guys. He, he wrote about boxing, right? He wrote about boxing almost exclusively. That that's what, Well, he did write about boxing exclusively. I say almost because there was the famous story, at least in our family, of the night that uh, the examiner was short-staffed and they sent my father to cover a hockey game. My father had never seen a hockey game in his life. (laughs) He had no interest in it whatsoever. And so he went to cover this hockey game and the next day he filed his story and the first line of his story was, thank God a fight broke out. I'm sure you're aware that people, you know, back in the VHS video days, there was a a booming trade in hockey fight footage among collectors, <laughs> some of which were active players who collected them too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I confess I have a – look, Jello, I was surprised when we were at the last Noir City Festival at the end of one of those evenings, we were, we were talking – and I had no idea that you were a sports fan, that you actually, you know, I don't know how closely you follow sports, but that you knew your sports. That amazed me. I veer in and out. There was some of it as a kid because of the daily paper. And then, you know, reading Jim Murray's column, among other things, for 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 yucks. And then the only way I could get my grandfather on my mother's side in Michigan to kind of try and ingratiate myself, I was this misfit kid. He wasn't real thrilled with weird eating habits. Then his hair is long and he's fat and junior high, blah, blah, blah. But he watched Cubs games, Chicago Cubs, baseball games every single day. So I got to know them well. And the trivia was there and needle him about his flubby cubbies and things like that. And then at home, the big religion, my father watched all kinds of sports, but the big one was the Denver Broncos, who were just horrible in those days. You know, the worst than the Raiders ever were in the final days of Al Davis. They lost year after year after year. Dad would get mad year after year after year. And I miss him getting mad at Bronco games like crazy because he was gone at age 86 in what, 2013. So I, I, whether I liked it or not, 
uh, there's certain areas I, I, I retain trivia up for. I'm useless with stocks and bonds or some of those kind of things. But uh, I, the big ones, music, sports, when I'm actually paying attention, and the, I guess the two big ones are music and white-collar crime. <laughs> I mean, Watergate went down in our teenage years, and I had parents who did not shield me from the bloody Vietnam War footage and violent attacks on Selma and all that as a kid, you know, and it was discussed intelligently. Thus, I had very passionate opinions about these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that, that always kind of retained some of that and stuff. And then kind of started zeroing back in on the Giants around the turn of our current century. And then players we had been familiar with for several years, suddenly they got in the World Series while I was on tour in Europe and missed the heartbreak of that one. But uh, yeah, so so I pay attention. I'm hoping we get Gabe Kapler on Renegade Roundtable, the Giants manager at some point, because he's, he's not just a, you know, an old baseball salt who's been nothing but a jock. And if he has opinions at all, they're probably very conservative. And that's not Gabe Kapler at all. No. Deep thinker on many, many other subjects and uh, kneeled with his players when the 2020 season finally began. And uh, th- then th- last year, he wouldn't come out for the national anthem after yet another round of police violence and stuff. And he, he couldn't take it anymore and said so. So, uh, yeah, he, he seems like a pretty, pretty uh, interesting and very uh, eloquent speaker, actually. I, re- I like oh, yeah. I like listening to his uh pregame talks because he actually makes a lot of sense about stuff. And he, he seems like a pretty, pretty cool guy. I, you know, I have a lot of friends in Philadelphia and, you know, he, he coached in Philadelphia before he came out here and they hated him. They hated him. I think they hated him for the very reasons that he is a perfect fit in San Francisco. And it's not as though they lost a ton of games under him all of a sudden or anything, was it? No, I think it was just something about his personal style and his his approach to the game that, you know, Philadelphia sports fans are the most hardcore conservative kind of sports fans <laughs> in the world. And they had, no u- they had no use for his, let's face it, he has a very California style uh, when it comes to dealing yeah. with his players and everything. And I, I don't think they had any use for that in Philadelphia. So Philadelphia to me is the most fascinatingly horrible city I've been to in this entire country. Not my <laughs> least favorite. I mean, there's no. some that are just so badly designed and falling apart, like Houston and St. Louis that are just like, I know good people in both and there's some great stuff. But overall, oh my God, you know, if Scott Weiner, the state senator here, gets his way and there's no more zone laws, we're going to get Houston, Texas for the whole state or Jacksonville, Florida. No zoning at all. And it's just, you know, it's not a good way to have a city. More yeah. on that some other time, perhaps. But Philadelphia, on the other hand, it's just so warped and stuff. Uh, I mean, I, li- I like Philadelphia very much. I've always enjoyed the time I've spent there. Uh, but I'm, I'm aware of, you know, it's a tough town. Philadelphia yeah. is a very tough town. I mean, friends I have there even called, hey, hi, Jello, welcome to Hostel City. Yeah, <laughs> city of brotherly love. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, at some point, you weren't just writing for trade mags and started maybe to, I guess I'm going to jump next because I don't know where else to go and what created you with your early books. 
you know, you've written both nonfiction books and even two novels now as well, but the early stuff is not about film noir. Kuchar and coming up through him kind of fills in the blanks here because the first book I know of, it's not about noir. It's called Grindhouse, The Forbidden World of Adults Only Cinema, and then on top of cinemas, plural, and then a, a VHS only documentary you co wrote and co produced called Mau Mau Sex Sex. Yes. And then another book called Go Crazy, The Origin of American Outlaw Cinema. I've never seen that one. I want oh, to I gotta get you, I got to get you a copy of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. But um, uh, how to explain all of this? Uh, so Grindhouse was... So years ago, when I was living in San Francisco, I had a very good friend of mine. Uh, we made films together. When we were, when I was at the Art Institute and he was at San Francisco State University, his name was Fred Klein. And Fred's dad was a, a film distributor, uh, Mel Klein's Super Films. And Fred was a projectionist in San Francisco. He, he got in the projectionist union. And one night he called me up and said, you got to come down here to the, um, I think it was the Center Theater, which was a porn house at that point. And he said, I'm projecting down here, but I found something that you need to come take a look at. And so uh, I went down there and in the in the basement of this incredible theater, do you, do you know this place on Market Street in San Francisco? I, it's, I think the theater is still there. I don't know what it is now, but uh, it was the Center Theater, uh, C-E-N-T-R-E. And not not the Cento Cedar. No, 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 no. That that was over in. Uh, I I've right, been right. to the Cento Cedar, which was you know you'd go out the back door and you could go get fish and chips at the Edinburgh Castle uh, down the street from the Cento Cedar and all that. That was a fabulous place. But uh, the Center Theater was right on Market Street. It had been like a grindhouse uh, newsreel theater uh in the 30s and 40s but also like an exploitation house and in in the basement were decades of material from these movies that i knew nothing about and so we stole it all we just you know i, I brought it my mom's car <laughs> and he said because that was it when fred said come down here and visit me he said and bring your mother's car uh, I didn't even have a car at that time, but he knew that my mom had this big old Chevy with a huge trunk, you know? And so we, we stole all this stuff out of the basement of the theater. That material became the basis for my first book, Grindhouse, because it, it opened up a world of, uh, dirty movies to me that were made all the way back from like the early 1930s on into the 1960s. And so just having to educate myself about what is this stuff, uh, where did this all come from, that, that's what my first book was all about. Aha. Uh -huh. And somehow you vaulted from that into noir scholarship, czar of noir, and more from there. <laughs> so after Gun Crazy, The Origin of American Outlaw Cinema, the uh, Mau Mau Sex Sex, and the rest. How did that put you on a path for your deep dive into noir? I'm assuming you were a voracious reader from early on. 
too. Um, I, yeah. I was, I was, I uh, yes, always, a, always a reader, and I just felt at a certain point like my my goal in life was to um, was to write a novel. That was my goal in life, and um, I remembered uh, when my dad was working at the paper, he got. Um, a book sent to him called Fat City by uh, a guy named Leonard Gardner, a young writer. He, uh, Leonard was 29 at that point, and he had written this book that was a boxing novel. Uh, my dad never did anything with it. He just brought it. My dad used to always bring stuff home for me and like give it to me, like like sports photos. And, you know, back then, the newspaper was the coolest place in the world. Right. I mean, it was the nerve center of the American city. And and the fact that my dad would bring me stuff, you know, off the wire or, you know, his original drafts of his columns that he my dad would type uh, on a roll of paper in the typewriter so that he didn't have to change the paper. He would just write his columns in one long sheet and then he'd send them to the, the you know, the copy. The kid would take him to the copy editor and everything. And and this he'd bring the originals home to me, which I still have dozens and dozens and dozens of these. <laughs> And one more project way on a back burner is the collected writings of Eddie Muller Sr. Yeah, I, I mean, I've actually had a lot of people inquire about that. Anyway, so uh, all of that stuff was just super interesting to me. And then um, making the transition to the noir guy was just after I'd written Grindhouse, I, I was now a published author. And the, my editor, Gordon Van Gelder, who was the, um, related to um, Rudy Van Gelder, who is famous as a jazz guy on the East Coast. He did a lot of stuff for Blue Note, the Blue Note label and everything. Rudy Van Gelder produced a lot of very important jazz musicians. And uh, anyway, Gordon said to me, so what do you want to do as a follow-up? We'll buy your next book. And, and that's when I just said, well, I, I want to write a book about film noir, uh, which I loved, but I didn't really know that much about it. So I, I made that research project. You know, I got paid to do all this research about film noir and wrote my, my uh, initial book on the subject, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir. And that, Jello, basically that started the whole, the whole thing because the book came out and... Uh, there were still a number of people alive who I referenced in the book, who I ended up meeting, uh, Bud Bedecker, Andre de Toth, uh, a bunch of the actresses who were in these films. And I, I got to program film festivals, first for the American Cinematheque in Hollywood, and then at the Castro Theater here in, in San Francisco in 2003. And... And it just took off, and and all of a sudden I was like a, a a lightning rod for the people who loved this stuff, because I was doing you know film shows that that everybody could come and share their their enthusiasm for these movies. Was Noir City your first festival, or did you do stuff in the Cinematheque or someplace in L.A. earlier? No, I did stuff in L.A. earlier. Uh, I, I can't remember how long, two, two or three years in LA. And that was fantastic because a lot of the people who made the films were still living and they were in LA 
And so they came out as guests of the festival. Like the first year we did the festival, I remember women outlive men. So, so it's just the fact of the matter. So there were all these women, Audrey Totter, Evelyn Keys, Jane Greer, Marie Windsor, Jan Sterling, all of these actresses were still around and came out and appeared with the movies. Uh, but then we also had writers, the the few surviving directors who were around. Uh, it, it was just, it was fantastic. And then out of that, um, Anita Manga, who was programming at the Castro, uh, saw what I was doing in LA and invited me to do an even bigger festival at the Castro. And and that's when that's when I called it Noir City. And 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 by then, for through the connections in L.A., I assume you were already able to somehow worm your way into the good graces sort of studio bosses or the people who would actually let you into their vaults and look for 35 millimeter prints of movies they denied even existed and finding them. Correct. Correct. It wasn't that they denied they existed. They just weren't that aware. And and that wasn't all the studio people, but that was certainly the case at times was like, so, and, and it was, it was, uh, it took several years, you know, it wasn't an overnight thing. It's like, we had to show that like there were audiences for this. And then it's like, wow, they're asking for more of this stuff. And then quite honestly, it was just, who, who are these people? And when we asked, can we come on the, on the lot? Can we come to the studio and visit you and talk about this? They were completely thrilled because these are people who by and large work in total anonymity. You know, even their bosses, the people who sign their paychecks don't know who they are or what they do. So, So the fact that somebody wanted to come on the lot and talk to them about this stuff and like how they preserve the material or don't um, was was really intriguing. And then it's just, Jello, this goes right back to what we were saying at the top. It, it makes all the difference in the world when you actually meet somebody face to face and look them in the eye and talk to them about something instead of it just being an email or a, something like that. So the fact that I could meet people like Grover Crisp at, at uh, Sony or Bob O'Neill at Universal or Sean Belston at 20th Century Fox it was just like, you know, let's talk about this. What's your favorite movie? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, I can I can get a bunch of plays out of a film that nobody else knows anything about. I can do that. And and over the years, they really came to respect me because it was like, wow, here's a movie that nobody's even heard of. And Eddie's actually getting an audience to pay money to come and see this. And it's 65 or 70 years old. And nobody knows what it is. There's video and DVD sales to be had. Well, (laughs) yes, that is that is definitely true. Although I I quickly learned that, you know, there's a there's a huge disparity between what the bosses think is success and profitability and what right. a normal person right. thinks is profitable, yeah. right? Yeah. Like I, I remember going to I remember going to Paramount and saying, you know, you guys have a bunch of old noir films that I don't even think you're aware of what you have. 
and I could do something with these. And they said, well, how many units do you think you'll be able to sell? And I said, optimistically, uh, like maybe 10,000. And it was like, eh, too bad. If you'd said 100,000, we might've had a conversation here, you know? Uh, and which is to me is absurd because 10,000 units of something is tremendous in this day and age. If you oh, can- yeah. If you can sell 10,000 units of an old movie, that, that's spectacular. There's no way, like, they, they look at me like, you're nuts if you think that means something. And I look at them and I say, you're nuts if you think you're going to sell 100,000 copies. Unfortunately, uh, the film industry and the music industry, among others, are often have been swallowed by the same predatory corporations, thanks to deregulating the takeover laws with Reagan and all. And their whole, they're not run by fan. They might as well be selling insecticide. They don't care. They, you know, they, then their whole thing for both is we'll lose gazillions of dollars on five blockbusters in hopes we make all this money back on the sixth blockbusters. We will try to launch dozens of Justin Bieber's or Britney Spears's or Rihanna's or whatever and hope that we make all the money back on one and then forget about the rest of them, the hell of them. And anything else like A&M Records nurturing an artist for half a dozen albums before they break or something because they believed in and they liked it. Warner's was good for that too. That is gone. And on that cheerful note, we have come to the end of our one-hour podcast source thing. Get ready later on, folks, for part two. And until then, go get some popcorn, hit your flask outside, smoke <laughs> your damn tobacco if you must, although that's kind of film noir for all the wrong reasons, and we will be back. We'll be back.